Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 50. To Psalm 50. As we continue our sometime evening series in the Psalms, we're now up to Psalm 50, this series having begun uh, with John Carroll, and uh, we're continuing to push forward together uh, in that pattern. As we gather around the Word, let's do so with prayer. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we ask now that your word would be an open book to us. It is true and sure, and we ask that you would give it the light of your Holy Spirit, that he would illumine it to make us understand, to apply it to our hearts and lives, that it might indeed not return void as you promise, but rather bear good fruit in our hearts and lives. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 50, this is God's inspired word. A psalm of Asaph. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me, my faithful ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills, I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world in its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was like you yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. 
Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart, and there will be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. May God bless that holy reading of his word to our hearts and to our lives. Well, I must confess to you, luck has never been my strong suit. It seems not even to really help me much in bridge. As a child, when we would uh, use straws, you know, to decide who got to go first and who got the the KP duty, I, I always picked the short straw. That was just the way it worked. And tonight, this lifelong Rankin tradition continues for all of us here. You see, preaching on Psalm 49, the last time I was with you in the evening, that was fun. It's a joy to preach about God being our Redeemer and all the blessings thereunto appertaining. But now we turn the page. And just like this morning, one more time, the topic is sin. Now, we all know sin is a four-letter word, and it can make us feel uncomfortable and squirm just a bit in our chair. And the good news is, is there's only 15 minutes left before we have to eat tacos. So this will be uh, short and sweet and to the point. But when you have to stand up in front of a group of people and expound sin, well, that's especially tough. And to make matters worse, everybody's football team lost yesterday. So I know you're not in a great mood. After the tacos, you'll be in a great mood. But now there's this subdued, reflective feeling, except among those from Old Miss among us. So we turn to Psalm 50, and here we see a short, sharp truth. God remembers the forgetful church. God remembers the forgetful church. Now the passage opens emphasizing God is the mighty one. God is the creator. He calls on all of the perfection of his creation and of Zion to shine forth to his glory. And then he turns on us and he speaks of judging Our God comes, He does not keep silence, before Him is a devouring fire, around Him a mighty tempest. And so our ears perk up, and we gather this is not one of those happy psalms with lots of clappy parts that we can feel good about. God has said in verse 4, to call to the heavens and to the earth that he may judge. And if we get that far in the passage, we feel good. All right, he's going to gather all creation and all those nasty things out there in the fall of word. They're going to be judged. And then he drops the bomb that he may judge his people. Now, that's not what we expect to read in this passage. We expect that he is going to judge the nations. You know, all those other nations, Babylon, Egypt, the Canaanites, the Philistines, 
the Jebusites. We can go on at great length and catalog the nations surrounding Israel that were her enemies and sought to undo her and to bring down the temple of God and to thwart the worship of God. They're the real enemies. That's where the problem lies. Our hearts scream back to God. But here the Lord, with just that phrase, to judge His people, He lets us know that He takes sin seriously. And so He forces us into a corner, onto a seat, into the spotlight where it is not so comfortable. Just by that phrase, He lets us know that He takes our sins individually and even corporately not with a wink and a nod or a head turned the other way, but He takes them gravely and will hold us to account. You see, what He, what he goes on to catalog in the middle part of this song is that His godly ones have not been so godly. You see, God does not want mere ritual. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. God says, you are busy worshiping me. You're busy obeying all these commands that I have given you. You bring offerings to me all the time, and I won't accept them. God rejects the ritual of his people because they're going through the motion on the outside, and that appears to be all. Oh, they kept the Mosaic commands. They kept the ceremonial law. They were right in every detail. But the whole point of the ceremonial law is to point to Christ and to His benefits. To point to the church redeemed. To draw us to a preparation for an understanding of the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary. That we might know Him and that we might be redeemed by His blood. God wants worship, not from the outside, but from the inside. It's so funny, isn't it? When God says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world in its fullness are mine. He has no need of us. It's not that the worship practice with which He has prescribed, either in the Old Testament dispensation, in the Old Testament period, what He required the people of God in all its intricacy, in all of its detail. It was not because there was something missing in God and He desperately needed bulls and goats to be sacrificed. He appointed His Word, He appointed His worship in order to aid us, to bless His people, to enlighten our minds, to prepare us to receive the Savior so that when Jesus might come, we would understand and we would embrace Him and we would appreciate the fact that He's the propitiation for the wrath of God for our sins by His death on the cross. God wants worship from the heart. And so in verses 14 and 15, He speaks to us about our need to bring a sacrifice of thanksgiving and to turn to Him in time of trouble. From the heart and life we turn to Him. What is the only remedy for our half-hearted worship? It is the full-hearted sacrifice of Jesus Christ our Lord. 
His death on Calvary is all that can redeem us so that changed from the inside out, we might come with the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving and find in Him our all in all. And so God, having made that point clearly, calls us to repentance and renewal. He he comes to testify against His people. I am your God. I am God your God. And He rebukes us for our lack of heartfelt, genuine Christian worship. He calls us to repentance and renewal because we are His and He is ours. He has deigned to speak to us. He blesses us by communicating to us. Rather than letting us live in our confusion and our disobedience and and our warped and sick outward merely worship, He confronts us in love. He calls His people to account. His love is a holy love towards us. And so He calls us to turn. How is it? That thanksgiving and praise are acceptable to our God because our mouth and our heart and our life, the very core and soul of our being and existence has been washed in the blood of the Lamb. That's how. And washed in the blood of the Lamb, even our paltry praises become jewels in the crown of Christ Jesus our Lord. Even our small efforts at thanksgiving as tainted as they are in this life still, with the mud of abiding sin and half-heartedness, they are washed clean in His blood and so suitable for the garment of a king. Oh, He calls us. He calls us to repentance and renewal. On this basis of Christ our Lord, He speaks to us about our spiritual shortfall. He doesn't give up on us. He doesn't walk away. He doesn't send a thousand comets to level the land and start all over. He does not forget His covenant love. And so He speaks to us of the kind of worship that's truly needed. Now, why is God concerned in this passage with worship? You know, if, uh, if we gathered a United Nations Commission and asked them to make a list of all the real problems in the world, that would not be found on the sheet. There would be world hunger. Uh, there would be disease. There would be wars. There would be strife between people and nations. There would be a whole host of very serious matters about which we needed to be dealt with. But God here speaks to us in terms of our relationship to Him. He speaks to us in terms of worship and He does so because it is more influential and more all-pervasive than any other problem in the universe. God is concerned about worship. He instituted it and He rightly demands it. And so we must face the question whether our worship is true and sure. Is it true worship? That is, is it according to God's Word? Here he smashes all the pretense of outward ceremonies and the trappings of importance. You know, we are apt 
as fallen men and women and even boys and girls, to hold things that are sentimental to us quite dearly. We're apt to even hold the trappings of worship in a more heartfelt way than the real substance of worship. It may sound very strange to you, but there's a... um, um, there's a, a circumstance of worship in Scotland that I just love. It just makes me feel so good. Because you see, I've gone into those sanctuaries for years when we were studying there and heard the Word of God preached and, and, and sang with the people with, of God with gusto and, and the Lord has blessed my heart and life in that sanctuary. And I associate spiritual blessings with that strange, musty smell of Scottish churches. You see, they're too cheap to keep their heat on and keep the, uh, the mold and the mildew away. They, they have no heat. Actually, on Sunday morning, they don't really believe in heat. You come and you bring your coat and you wear it all through the service. And if you're lucky, if your deacons are enlightened, then they have installed little electric heaters or uh, little, little pipes right at your feet so you can set your shoed feet upon the pipe as steam goes through it, and at least your toes are warm. And the unintended consequence of this is that strange, musty smell. It's just that odd, like that odd color in Scottish churches. You know, in the Victorian period when they were flush with money and and the churches split over the issue of, of control, uh, of the ministry, whether it was to be biblical Presbyterianism or, or something after some kind of government-controlled Anglicanism. All these churches were built. They had timber that was in, used to build these churches and, and they needed to paint them. And so in good Victorian fashion, they commissioned someone to come up with a stain with which to stain all the timbers. And you know what it's called? It's called church stain. That's the name of it. You can paint your living room in church stain color if you wish. Every church you go into, they all have that same kind of tone and tint. And so the smell feels spiritual and the glow feels spiritual. And then you get back to America and you think, what was I thinking? Whatever crossed my mind. But here, what do churches fight over? Uh, They struggle over the worship of God and they they hold more dear than matters of the heart things that are sentimental and precious to them, like the color of the carpet. Churches have split over the color of the carpet. Oh, the position of the organ pipes. Over all sorts of silly trapping matters. You know, I had a rebellion one time. The elders decided to put in to put in lights in the sanctuary. Chandeliers. They were quite beautiful. They they didn't spare expense. It it was finally for the first time in the life of that church they were going to be able to sing without standing in their shadow with a hymn book in front of them. And we had a rebellion because somebody had moved my cheese. They loved the dark. They liked the shadow. It made them feel closer to Who knows what? God does not want us to be attached to such circumstances of worship. You know, whether we put pews or or chairs in, that's a practical matter. And thank God the deacons can make that decision and we don't have to get torqued about it. 
You know, I have absolutely no idea what color the walls will be uh, when the new uh, portion of the Sunday school rooms goes up. And you know, it doesn't matter one whit to God. He doesn't care. He's more concerned about how we treat each each other as we choose the color and as we apply it and as we uh, deal with one another afterwards. Churches can be mean and horrible places. I remember the time when I was in a congregation and and the... the, uh, the deacons appropriated the money and the, the elders decided that they would fix up an old odd room that was totally disused into a nice large Sunday school. They put a giant board at the front. They put chandeliers in there too. They like those chandeliers apparently <laughs> in that particular uh, location. And uh, what did some of the ladies say as they walked into the room? Oh, what puke green this is. Now, you see, the things of God, the things of God are not made of colors and tints. They're not made of fabric and even bricks. Oh, yes, there's beauty in the world, and it's important not to distract people from the worship of God. But we must all remember Psalm 50, where the Lord calls us out from even our obsession which things with things that make us feel good and formality. You see, those that weren't worshiping God from the heart, they were bringing sacrifices. They were probably even bringing the best of their flock as sacrifices. My quiet suspicion due to some 25 years of pastoral experience is that they were quite proud of those bulls and goats and lambs that they were bringing and probably were busy looking at the person next to them to see whether theirs were just as good or maybe better. God wants us to worship Him from the heart, to turn to Him and to love Him with a heart which has been redeemed. And so in this passage, God ends by reproving the wicked. Surprisingly, in verse 16, he speaks to the wicked. He said, what right have you to recite my statutes or to take my covenant on your lips? And again, I read, he speaks to the wicked and I say, now he's going to hit the ball out of the park. Let's get those Moabites. And no, what does he do? He speaks to the covenant people of God. You see, the godly here, or those that should be godly, they are the wicked. And he tells us in the next breath that even the godly disobey God's moral law. Oh, they've got the worship thing formally right. But then look at the catalog of disobedience. You hate discipline. You cast my words behind you. You like thieves. Uh, You like to keep the company of adulterers. Now, hold on a minute. Let's not twist the Old Testament into something it's not. This is not a verse against our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and His his habit of not shunning sinners but having them in His presence that He might evangelize them and and redeem them. No, this is is not talking... uh, This is euphemistic language. They're hanging out with adulterers because they themselves are adulterers. That's what's implied. You give your mouth free reign... Your tongue frames deceit. You speak against your brother. Your poor mother's son is not even safe around you. And even less safe not around you. These things you have done, and I have been silent, and you thought that I was just like you. 
Oh, the people of God can disobey God's moral law and not deal with one another in a Christ-like fashion. And so our hearts are humbled and cast into the dust as here by way of application and negative example that is cataloging how they have broken the Ten Commandments, we all feel a shudder go through our soul because we've done these things. To break the law in one place is to break it in all. Have our tongues not slipped? Has our, have our eyes not moved? Have our hearts not longed for that which was not ours or admired someone who got away with something that was evil? Oh, God humbles us here by calling us to face the fact that His silence is not approbation and that He will reach out in His providence and chastise us. He will smack us upside the head with a two-by-four and we will go reeling with a two-by-four of His providence. He will encounter our sin and readjust. Why? Because He loves us. He reproves His sons and His daughters and calls us to newness of life in Christ again. Oh, even the godly must repent from the heart or they will suffer what is here so frighteningly outlined. Mark this, verse 22, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. God will judge His church. He will judge His church for her sins and He will straighten her in His providence because He takes sin seriously. And so what is our only hope in face of this? It is, it is to once again flee to Christ our Savior. The one who offers thanksgiving as His sacrifice glorifies Me. The one who orders His way rightly, I will show salvation. He is not an invitation to earn your way to heaven. It's an invitation to live the Christian life by His power and grace. Jesus gives you joy and thanksgiving. You can't ever work that up yourself at all. And Jesus gives you a right path. He outlines for you and He gives you the power of His Spirit that you may glorify God in your living. And you can't do that by yourself. So Psalm 50 is hard. And Psalm 50 is dark. The Lord here tells us that He will not forget us though. And therefore He chastises those whom He loves And He has given this to us not merely as a declaration, but as a song. We're supposed to sing this. It's supposed to be on our lips and sung each day, as it were, as we go on our journey of life, that we might never forget, but always remember to worship Him from the heart. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that Your Word would bless us, that Your Spirit would bless us, that indeed You would give us thanksgiving and joy that we might give all praise to You from the heart. In Jesus' name, Amen.